electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange with a big hour ahead. I'm Kelly Evans. Google's developer I.O. event is kicking off right now, and investors want some reassurance about Google's AI plans. Our guest wants Sundar Pichai to sound more like a hungry startup founder and not like a comfortable big company CEO today. He explains why and will bring you all the big headlines as we get them out of this event. Speaking of AI, it's helping shares of Duolingo soar today. This after competitor Chegg tanked 40% last week on disruption concerns. So how is Duolingo using AI to its benefit? The CEO joins us live ahead. With fresh signs also that inflation is cooling and new data that spending on services is slowing, is the stage finally set for a Fed pause in June? You know we're going to debate that. First, though, let's get to the markets. Hi, Tom. It's a debate. It is a debate in the markets right now, and it's about the Fed and everything else, Kelly. To your point, if you look at the markets right now, it's mixed, kind of flattish if you look at the broader S&P 500. But the, the real story is about the trading range that we've seen today. Some of the more encouraging parts of that CPI report this morning did lead to a high of the day of around 35 points in terms of gain for the S&P 500. We've been down as low as seven. So we're, again, losing a good amount of momentum here. The, the range has been relatively wide in terms of up to down. 41.16 is where the S&P 500 is right now. We're down about one half of 1% for the Dow Industrials, 33,370 or thereabouts in the NASDAQ composite. The real upside gainer up one half of 1%, 63 points to the upside, 12,244. One of the reasons why that tech trade is flourishing today it has to do with cloud computing. Now, it's a mixed picture with a couple of the names. Akamai on the cloud computing side up 8%, better than expected results, also a better than expected full year forecast they raised there. Twilio in terms of kind of that communications cloud side of things down 16%, their current quarter guidance for revenue, not what some people were expecting. So those shares are down. But on balance, check out some of the cloud-based ETFs, Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing, Global X Cloud Computing, both up around 1% to 2.5% on the day. So a general positivity in that part of technology. And then as Kelly mentioned, AI this, AI that, this is all about the Google I.O. conference, talking about some of the AI ambitions for the tech giant. The shares are up 1.5% today, but remember back on February 8th, when Alphabet slash Google first introduced its barred AI assistant, that was right about here. Remember on that day, we saw a huge drop in Alphabet shares to the tune of about roughly 106 billion dollars in lost market cap on one day alone. So yes, the stakes are high, Kelly, when it comes to this Google I.O. conference. We'll see what Sindar Pichai and the gang say about what their ambitions are and how they realize them in the future. Kel, back over to you. And as that chart shows, they're back to those pre-crash levels and even higher as the market takes it in stride. Dom, thanks very much. Let's get more on this high stakes event and what it all means for the race to be the leader in artificial intelligence. Dear Jabosa is live in Mountain View today. And Dear Jab, what's the market expecting? 
You know, Kelly, I just heard a loud cheer behind me. That happened just as Sundar Pichai took the stage. Um, people here are very excited. This is a developer conference, but what is at stake is Dom so acutely outlined is more than just developers. I mean, Google has a chance today to really prove to developers, to consumers, to investors that it hasn't lost its innovative edge, that it hasn't given up the lead in this huge platform shift to Microsoft and ChatGPT and Satya Nadella. So that's really what is at stake today. Dom just, Dom just showed you what happened at the last AI event, which was in Paris a few months ago. That huge drop as investors really became skeptical that Google is going to win this despite so many years, despite calling itself an AI first company for many, many years. So that's what we're watching today. Um, it has to excite. And that's really going to be Sundar Pichai, the CEO's job. He has to show investors, consumers, developers that he can be as excited about this as some of the other players that are quickly, very quickly gaining steam in this AI race. All right, absolutely, Deirdre. And I guess the, the real, you know, they also had that leaked document. Uh, I don't know if the verifi uh, if yeah. its authenticity was ever confirmed, but it, it seemed legit and it was talked about kind of how it wasn't about Google and it wasn't even about Microsoft. It was really about whether open source was already off to the races with AI and everyone else just kind of scrambling to catch up. Yeah, and some of the previews have also, you know, questioned how Google is going to manage to be at the forefront of generative AI while not cannibalizing. It's still bread and butter. That is search. What's going to happen to those two blue links that we see every time we search in a Google search box? Are those going to go away? How can it make room for some of this open source AI? Is it going to also assist some of its competitors in the space? These are all very big questions. We are at the early innings. And while you've seen some some volatility. I think it's important to note what Dom just mentioned is that even though we saw $100 billion wiped off the market cap of Google in one day on the back of that botched AI event, you know, Google and Microsoft, they're pretty neck and neck here. And investors, while they may be a little bit skeptical, they're also very well aware that Google has been here for a long time. The question is, how is Senator Pichai going to play this today? Is he going to be cautious as he has been over the last few months? Or is he going to go for a little more pomp and circumstance? I mean, even in the opening pre-show, um, we had a composer slash DJ compose a song with the help of AI um, to open it up. So clearly they're trying to do a little more, a little hmm. more to show off the tools that they're developing. Yeah, we've got a little pop in the shares anyway as they get started. Deirdre, we'll see you again as we get more headlines and developments. Deirdre Bosa in Mountain View. Let's turn to our next guest who expects today's event to be more about following the competition than setting an agenda. And in order to change that, he says the tone of today's keynote by CEO Sundar Pichai will be critical. Joining me now is Alex Kantrowis, big, big technology founder and a CNBC contributor. Alex, it's good to see you. Um, what, it's, it's like if he does the kind of tone you're talking about, it's also an acknowledgement of their stumbles, and they don't really seem to want to acknowledge that. Well, I think they have to at this point. I mean, who are they trying to fool? Right. Everybody who's watching technology, the entire market understands that Google's been slow here. So if they take this tone of we are the leader, who's going to believe that? I think Sundar needs to come out really and say, we, are, we know we're in the fight, not maybe not for our lives, but one of the fights of the generations in technology. And to do that, we got to get back to the roots of Google. We got to come at this with a startups mentality. We can't look at it as a big company and, and show the products that back that up. 
without that, I mean, the market's already seen so much at this point. I don't think it's going to be fooled. But that said, the shares are back above the level where they tanked on that early demo. Uh, They're up about 25 percent so far this year. And what if they kind of sit back and say, why would we chase this right now when it's developing so quickly? You know, why not just kind of wait a little bit, let the marketplace develop and then be more strategic about placing our biggest bets? Well, look, Google is a verb. Right. And the the reason why Google is a verb is because people became so accustomed to using Google that they wouldn't use any other site. Right. We don't like those or Alta Vista today or even Yahoo search. We Google and consumer behaviors are very, very difficult to change once you get them going. And when you think about the way that ChatGPT is making headway or even Bing, right, what Google risks right now is losing that user behavior to its competitors. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a good point, right? Like this is going to take some time. We already know we know that uh, Bing isn't overtaking Google overnight, but you do risk getting that behavior set, you know, in the hands of your competitor. And if you're Google, you just don't want that. So looking through here, Alex, as we, uh, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of what to expect at this I.O. developers event, uh, it kind of runs the gamut. Hardware announcements, this could be when we see that foldable phone, the Pixel Fold, Pixel Tablet, Android 14. Then we get into the A.I. stuff. Um, Reportedly, CNBC reporting a large language model called Palm 2 includes more than 100 100 languages. We could hear more about that. They also have MedPalm 2, which can answer medical exam questions at an expert doctor level and is accurate 85% of the time. So um, what other granularity, you know, in specifics would you like to see here? Yeah, with the foldable phone, I don't think it's really a needle mover. I mean, I think when you ask people, what do you want in a phone? The first answer they have is not, I want it to fold. I think there's a reason why the Pixel is still single digits in terms of market share, although it's been growing. So I think that, you know, focusing on the traditional phone, you know, is probably a better move than making it fold. Uh, But that could change. Who knows? There's consumer fads and consumer electronics. Um, And then, yeah, I think that we're going to see a lot about uh, the generative models. Now, they're, of course, going to talk about it on the developer front. It is a developer conference. But, you know, consumers tune into this thing. So how is this going to change, you know, for instance, the BARD product? You know, there's been so many evolutions that have happened within ChatGPT and within Bing. And I really see this as a game of catch up for Google, which is not where you want to be when you're a company of this magnitude. That's been talking about AI, by the way, for years. Every developer conference they've had has been all about AI. So I think it's kind of weird and very interesting that they have to come now and reassert their vision and try to actually play some defense in a game they're used to playing offense in. Yeah, reportedly from that memo, one of the reasons why Google was kind of waiting to do more on the AI front, there are kind of four reasons that were cited, but one of them was responsible release. Um, This concern about, you know, the restrictions and the liabilities potentially associated with putting AI out there. On that note, Lena Khan was on Squawk Box this morning and said something very interesting about the liability that could be coming down the road for these AI models and their developers. Take a quick listen to what she said on Squawk Box. These are new tools, but it's important to know that the existing rules still apply. There is no exemption or legal shield that AI enjoys. And so for the FTC, that means that our laws prohibiting unfair practices, deceptive practices, unfair methods of competition, discrimination, collusion, all of those laws are still going to be applying and, and companies need to be on notice accordingly. So, Alex, I wonder if one of the concerns, if you're Google here, is you go and you sort of put this out into the wild, are you setting yourself up for major problems down the road if it's not perfectly ready for prime time? I don't think you're really afraid of the FTC. And, you know, Lena has been on on the, um, the tour now talking about this stuff. She had a New York Times op-ed. 
One of the things that I would like to see from her is more specifics about how she's going to actually implement these rules. And I don't think the, the vague threat of potential regulation, which Google has been under, you know, under threat of for, for years now, if not longer, right? Maybe over a decade, right? The fact that this stuff is coming at Google, I don't think that's going to worry the company very much. You know, one of the things she talks about is, um, you know, if you, if you, uh, scammer generates text inside a generative model, you know, then maybe the generative model might be held uh, liable. Under what rules and regulations? Like, are we going to start now to um, prosecute Microsoft for people typing up these scammer emails in Microsoft Word? I think it's just very shaky legal footing to try to pursue this stuff. And I don't think Google can really use that as an excuse. And, and that certainly was kind of what the tone of the memo indicated as well. Alex, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Alex Kantrowitz. Again, Alphabet shares are up about 2.5% right now. And in a quick programming note, Character.ai, which is a startup specializing in human-like text responses, they're set to announce a big partnership with Google Cloud during today's event. And the CEO of Character.ai will join us tomorrow right here on the exchange. We already use the technology to simulate a chat with some of my favorite dead economists. That is your tease. You don't want to miss it. Sticking with AI, we all remember EdTech Company's Chegg's earnings last week, where the stock was cut in half on signs that ChatGPT is already hurting their business. But yesterday, the opposite story from language app Duolingo. That stock has been on a tear, more than doubling this year, up 10% on its report today, and one of the few IPOs from 2021 that's actually trading above its offer price. Bookings, users, and revenue all up strongly year on year, and the company hiking guidance well above analyst expectations. Is this an under-the-radar AI play that's working? Joining me in an exchange exclusive is Duolingo CEO, Luis Von Ahn. Welcome, Luis. Appreciate your time. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell me how AI you think is, is helping Duolingo more than potentially hurting it. Uh, well, I think for us, it's a, a major headwind. Uh, sorry, tailwind. <laughs> so it's helping us a lot. Uh, in, in, for example, the, the thing that it allows us to do is teach closer to a one-on-one -on -one human tutor. This is what we've always wanted to do with Duolingo from the beginning was to teach as well as a one-on-one -on -one human tutor. And with the latest uh, advances in AI, we can get closer to that. Understood. But when I look again through what we are going to hear from Google this very hour, um, according to CNBC, they're planning to announce a general use large language model called Palm 2 that includes more than 100 languages. You know, is mm -hmm. that going to circumvent the need for everybody to get, you know, good at, at other languages with an app like yours? Well, language translation has been very good for the major languages for the last 10 years, and that has not prevented people from learning a language. It turns out that most of our users uh, are, are in two big categories. One of them is people who want to learn English and actually want to do it for, for a job or to move to a country like the U.S. I don't think those people can really rely on having some sort of headphone that, that help, helps them uh, you know, translate uh, all the time. That's one big category. The other big category is people who are learning language as a hobby. Um, also, they're not going to be uh, affected by, by something like that. And again, language translation have been very good between, for example, English and Spanish for the last 10 years. So uh, we're not particularly worried about that. You know, Sel Khan, uh, actually very early on after ChatGPT came out, came on and said he thought it would be great for business, great for education, kind of exactly what you're describing. So, you know, roll the clock forward six months, 12 months. How will my Duolingo app experience be changing as a result of this? Um, it'll, it'll feel a lot closer to you doing role play, for example, you'll be put in a situation where you're, you know, you're, you're told, hey, try to buy a croissant from this baker in, in Paris who also happens to be pissed off. Uh, and, and you just try to do that. And so I think we're going to be adding a lot more of that. And that helps you practice your conversation 
Um, and so we'll be able to teach a lot better. The other thing that we'll be able to do a lot more, which we're starting to do, we just launched a higher tier of our subscription called Duolingo Max, which what it, one of the things it does is it explains your mistakes in a very easy to understand way. Mm -hmm. Historically, it has been hard to give you a good explanation of your mistakes because you know we allow you to just enter whatever text you want. Sometimes the things that you enter are just so weird that we can't, we couldn't in the past really tell you what your mistake was. But now with generative AI, we can tell you exactly what your mistake is. That also kind of brings me to my last question, which is how expensive is it? Is this your generative AI proprietary that you're using? Are you licensing it from somebody else? We use a combination. So we use partly some of uh, homebrew stuff, but we also uh, use GPT-4. We were a launch partner with OpenAI. Uh, so this does cost money. And this is why we have it in a higher subscription tier. Um, but over time, we expect these costs to go down and you know it will try to figure out which tier you know we'll be able to give it to will we be able to give it to everyone for free or maybe it'll be the middle tier you know it'll it'll depend on on the cost of you know in which tier we put all, all the features let's remind people you also invented captcha which yeah. might be one of the most wise. what's next for you uh, continuing to work on on Duolingo. I mean, we're starting to teach. We're starting to to teach things other than languages. For example, we launched an app to teach math called Duolingo Math. Uh, we're working on an app to teach music. So in general, we think we can teach you know most things that that take a long time to learn hmm. with a phone in a very effective way. And we think that generative AI can help us with that quite a bit. All right, I got to go, but we just got a piano yesterday, and I have a three-year-old who is kind of shown an affinity for it. Should I? And he loves the iPad. Do I? Can I put your music app on the iPad, and it'll teach him how to play the piano? It's not yet out. We're working on the music app. That'll be out in a few months. But when that happens, you should you should do it. It'll be extremely fun, just like Duolingo. Very interesting. Luis, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Luis Vanon is the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo. Still ahead, the 10-year yield plunging on this morning's CPI print, just in time for a Treasury auction top of the hour. We'll get the results and check on the latest debt ceiling drama for bonds. Plus, Evercore ISI tweaking its Fab Five portfolio for retail. Tractor supply is out and Walmart is in. The analyst joins us next with what's behind the call and why he's so bearish on one home improvement name. And as we head to break, here's a look at your markets. Dow at session lows down 242 points, but a very different tone for the NASDAQ. As you saw with Alphabet up 2%, the NASDAQ's up 4 tenths, the S&P down 8 to 41.11, and the 10 years at 344. The Russells are lower today as well. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to the headlines from today's Treasury auctions. Rick Santelli tracking that out at the CME. Hi, Rick. Hi, Kelly. Indeed, you know, the CPI number changed the course of the outcome of the election of the auction to some extent. Why? Because it took any concession away. Its yields dropped aggressively. So the auction was 35 billion 10-year notes, the second of a three-part auction, totaling $96 billion. And the grade was a C-plus, a Charlie plus. The yield, 3.448. It tailed about a basis point. The one-issued market was at 3.438. And the tailing was the issue. And most likely, the reason it tailed is because aggressive bidding just wasn't in the cards without that concession. But the metrics were very solid. And as you look at the chart, you can see we're at 3.44% before the auction. We're right there now, although we are making new low yields right now as I speak. Kelly, back to you. Wow, 344 on the 10-year. So, so much for, uh, for the massive debt ceiling problems. New data showing inflation is cooling, but will it be enough for the Fed? The consumer price index rose 4.9% year-on-year in April, less than expected. Tenth straight drop of declines after that 9.1 print last June. Also, Bank of America's April read on consumer spending softening. Airlines in particular dropping 4.5% from a year ago. And the New York Fed's recession indicator just spiked to 68%. At the end of April, kind of recession odds. It's the highest reading since 1982. Does all of this position the Fed for a pause at, in June? Let's ask Michael Schumacher. He's head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo, and he's here on set with me. Welcome. And Chris Crisanti is here as well. He is chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Welcome to both of you. Michael, I, I will just start with you and the CPI print. Does it pave the way for a pause next meeting? I think the, the Fed was really on track to pause anyway, Kelly, but this really takes out a bad scenario for the Fed. The report was pretty much as expected. You can look at headline core or whatever it might be. Nothing terribly shocking there. Still, if you look at inflation's run rate, it's too high. So Chair Powell likes to focus on, he calls it super core, but services taking out um, housing inflation, and that's still running at about a 4% annual rate. So above and beyond what he thinks is reasonable, but is it enough to get the Fed to change course and hike? We don't think so. Even though their own recession, well, the New York Fed's recession indicator, 68% odds at this point. That's largely based on the, the threes, 10 spread, but that's uncomfortably high. Is that recession a feature or a bug? Right. The Fed needs a slowdown, needs inflation to come down. Now, it doesn't want to see a really awful recession, but still a mild one. It's probably really what the Fed wants. It's just tough to make that point in public and to say it. That's why I thought, Chris, I, I guess I don't know what else he could say, but Chair Powell explicitly said in the press conference last time that his base case was not for a recession, which really surprised me. Sure. Well, it didn't surprise me that he, he said that there wasn't going to be a recession because he, he really can't. But, but, you know, recession is kind of a qualitative thing. I mean, if you slow too much, you ease into a recession. And that, again, I agree with Mike, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. In fact, for us equity investors, that would give us an opportunity to buy things at slightly lower prices, yet not fall off a cliff. So, so I, I do think, Kelly, we're still in an economy and a stock market that is speeding down a cul-de-sac. It, it seems happy, but there's really no place to go. There's no outlet here that, that ends happily in the short term, and do you, so we've talked about some of the stocks, you know, J&J is one you're looking at now, Dollar General. Um, I think we mentioned Domino's Pizza might be one on a pullback or if the labor market starts to soften. But is it just a matter of waiting then? You know, if we, if we wait two, three, six, five months, whatever the number is, um, you know, that's going to be the macro event? I think so. And I don't think you have to, to, to wait forever. I think there's things you can buy right now. For example, the Johnson & Johnson or the Dollar General. Those are both stocks that would do probably 
better in a recession relative to their peers. And, and so you could buy those now. Johnson & Johnson, for example, is doing the Kenview spin out with Tylenol and other great brands. And, and, and that's happening over the course of the year. So, so that might work even if the market declines. Dollar General is a counter-cyclical business. People tend to shop there more when the economy is slow. So there's stuff you can do now, but, but I really emphasize with clients, use, use a rifle, not a shotgun. You have to be really intentional. And since you're getting 5% for your cash, there's really no fear of missing out right now. And that's different than it's been for quite a while. Michael, do you think the opportunity in bonds right now is a one-off and it's going to go away uh, as we near the end of the year and we're going to look back and, and go, wow, we, we got 5% for a fleeting period of time? It's pretty impressive right now. And part of it on the front end is really fueled by the debt ceiling. And people are saying, ah, geez, do I really want to buy these T-bills in June or August? Maybe not. So you get some pretty wacky yields. 550 is even possible, depending on a particular issue. That's a one-off. I agree with that point. And if you extrapolate a bit down the road, going to next year, and let's say the Fed eventually does cut, you'll see yields come down quite a bit. So yields are probably high for a bit longer, but it won't last that much longer. Where do you think the 10 years? So we've heard, you know, Shri Kumar, for instance, has said he thinks 275 is kind of the next stop, um, you know, in terms of major, tra major trading moves. Is that on the table for you? That's a pretty big move. So if you think about it over the next two to three months, is that plausible? I think the debt ceiling thing would have to go totally off the tracks. So maybe not a default, but prioritizing payments, something like that, that really feels uncomfortable to a lot of people. And then sort of perversely, they'll buy bonds. Exactly. Because they'll say, the, the I need worse, to hide out. The worse the situation right. treasuries in, the more people are going to want to own That's the long-term right. debt, at least. Agreed. Then I guess my final question would be, what does it mean for stocks? If we are going to have this kind of re reset in yields, is that going to be supportive? Or at that point, is it everything going south? No, it's everything going south at that point. So bad for credit, probably bad for equities, just generally a bad result. No one wants to see it. Could happen. But we're definitely advocating people stay light on risk right now. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Michael Schumacher and Chris Grisanti. Still ahead, Disney earnings on deck. The street expecting plenty of fireworks. There's the fight with DeSantis, future of streaming, state of succession. We'll get the details next with the shares down almost 2% today. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map more broadly as the major, uh, as the composite, I should say, is around session lows. Amex, Nike, and Disney itself are among the worst performers, while Salesforce, Microsoft, Apple, and IBM are the four names that are in the green, a two, now a 300-point drop for the blue chips. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everyone. If you're wondering why we're at session lows, Dow's down more than 300 points. I don't have a lot of explanations for you. The Nasdaq is still hanging on to a seven-point gain. You know, we had that softer inflation data. Treasury yields are lower this morning. That New York Fed recession uh, likelihood I mentioned up to 68%. That could be spooking people. The S&P looks now like it could crack 4,100 again to the downside today. Keep an eye there. It's down about half a percent at the moment. Airbnb is the worst performer in the Nasdaq after giving weaker-than-expected guidance for the second quarter. Guidance, again, the problem with 
with so many of these reports. The stock is down 10% right now, which is overshadowing its first ever profitable quarter and a 20% jump in revenue year on year. On the call last night, CEO Brian Chesky said U.S. customers are extremely price sensitive right now, with the lowest price listings having the highest occupancy. And in terms of the impact AI is having on business, he told Squawk on the Street this morning he expects to see more distributed workforces around the world. Flexibility, he said, is here to stay. Despite today's decline, the shares are still up about, wow, 30% this year. And since the IPO, they've more than doubled. They've had their best start to a year since going public in December of 2020. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now. Welcome back, Ty, for a CNBC News update. Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News update at this hour. A Pakistani judge said former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan can be held for eight days after Khan was taken from a court and arrested on corruption charges yesterday. The arrest set off violent protests in the country that have killed at least six people. This is according to the Associated Press, Khan very popular in Pakistan. Back in the U.S., Governor Ron DeSantis signed an immigration overhaul bill today. The bill bans local governments from issuing identification cards for people who can't prove citizenship, among other measures. This comes one day before the Biden administration is expected to end so-called Title 42, which could lead to a surge of migrants at the border. And President Biden will host Prime Minister Narendra Modi during an official state visit in June. In a statement released today, the White House said the upcoming visit will affirm the deep and close partnership between the United States and India. Biden expected to meet with Modi in Australia later this month. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Sounds good, Tyler. Thank you so much. Coming up, key retail earnings on deck next week, including the biggie, Walmart. It's a buy for my next guest, but he says be careful with some of the names connected to one retail trend in particular. You're looking at one of them in our mystery chart. We have the name and what makes him cautious next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're through the big tech names, which can only mean retail earnings are around the corner. And we do kick things off with Home Depot next Tuesday, Target, TJX report on Wednesday, Walmart rounds things out next Thursday. My next guest upgraded Walmart to outperform at the end of March, citing positive traffic trends at Walmart and Sam's Clubs. Now he's bumped it to his Fab Five list ahead of those results. Stocks fractionally lower today. Uh, Walmart is different story for Lowe's, which is down 2%. That reports on the 23rd, and he's giving it a tactical negative going into the print on a housing slowdown and valuation concerns. Joining me now is Greg Mellick, equity analyst for Hardline and Retail at Evercore ISI. Greg, welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you can explain uh, housing. It makes people's heads hurt because on the one hand, we still hear about bidding wars and, you know, tons of, you know, price spikes. But on the other hand, we know that literally turnover activity for the market, broadly speaking, is way down from pandemic levels. Where does that leave the, the housing stocks? It's a great question. I think so. The housing and Steve Kim is our, our expert there has mm-hmm. been, I think, a little better than expected. And in large part, because we still think that there is a fundamental housing shortage. We can debate whether it's two, three, four million units uh, that was building up even before COVID. So as supplies coming back on, you are getting a little bit of pickup in housing turnover. The problem is it's a different cycle than for home improvement. Right. And so it's our home improvement indicator that actually went negative. Uh, about seven months ago, hmm. and is running at the worst level since in over 12 years. And that's because it's not about new housing construction. It's more about housing turnover was down last year. So traffic to the stores now gets hit this year. Plus, as home prices start to decelerate or even slip a little bit, 
uh, that'll start to hurt tickets. So we just think home improvement demand, not not new housing particularly, right? But home improvement demand. Uh, will fall 2% this year. No, it's fascinating. And basically, I think for people, we all have to think about this as home improvement stocks are keyed off of existing housing sales, existing home sales, ironically, not new home sales, which is more for the building. Anyway, let me get to the point here where we have Home Depot down year to date. And based on what you said, that makes sense. Why is floor and decor up 30%, right? I think, you know, Trek, we're going to speak with the CEO, another stock that's up well. So a lot of these home improvement type of names are up strongly, and yet the big boxes aren't. So I also find that odd. Yeah, at Florin Decor, I think it's a good company longer term. I think that some of those names are up so much, a lot of it was how poorly they did at the very end of last year. True. So, uh, Florin Decor uh, had a really tough, uh, uh, basically, November, December, that allowed it to go up a lot this year when they did guide down earnings a little bit uh, earlier in the year. Uh, it, the issue with Florin Decor is that they still, when they reported last week, they they said trends were softer into the second quarter, but they didn't change their full year guide. And so from a tactical standpoint, that's why that stock gave back a lot of its year-to-date gains. Uh, frankly, we think Lowe's could be set up for a similar situation mm-hmm. where uh, we're below their guidance and we're below the street for this year. Not massively, uh, but if second quarter isn't any better than first quarter, which we think was down around 3% for Lowe's, uh, we think that, that the street numbers will probably end up coming down and they might end up steering people towards the lower end of their current guidance. What's going on with Tractor Supply, a similar macro, or are you taking it out because it has done well? We took a, we put it in uh, a few months ago and it had a nice 15% move. And, and so we figured, you know what, we'll take that. Uh, <laughs> we'd love to annualize it somehow. Sure. <laughs> uh, and, and then we, since Walmart was one where we think there's better traffic momentum incrementally into the second quarter, uh, and we upgraded fundamentally on that traffic turn, we figured it was time to get that one in there. No, in the my, own, my only question on Walmart, which, you know, remains one of the, the best stories in retail ever since I remember going daily as a, you know, when I was growing up, is why wasn't it in your top five to begin with? You know, why did it come out? Yeah, you know, we run the top five as a top five portfolio, and we've done this start a few years ago, and, and we tried to be not tactical about a, a week or two, but, but more about a six month. So our normal ratings go out 12 to 18 months. Uh, and you know what we were thinking about with Walmart is uh, back in, in March, um, it was in the low 140s. And we wanted to get some more confidence that their analyst day, uh, that, that it wasn't gonna cost them too much to get this traffic acceleration and roll out a lot of the, uh, the innovations that they have to improve logistics and efficiency. And then we got that confirmation. Um, and then you know, I think our, our work suggests that uh, while sl- sales did slow in March and April, uh, they didn't slow as much as they did for the rest of retail. Hmm. Uh, and those are the two things that put us together that said, you know what, it probably has to catch up to the other staple stocks. Yeah, yeah I know you also put uh, saw some positive trends with AutoZone, maybe less so for BJ's. A lot of uh, churn right now as people work through a little bit more difficult couple of months here. Greg, thanks for joining us ahead of a lot of these results. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Greg Mellick with Evercore ISI. Still ahead from DeSantis to the digital ad problems, Disney currently facing multiple headwinds. They report second quarter results this afternoon. We will get a preview next. We're also sticking with the D names to look at shares of Dutch Bros, down almost 10% after reporting a same-store sales loss and missing on revenues. Both TD Cowan and JP Morgan downgrading the stock to hold today. JPM citing debt concerns that could impact its plans to expand eastward. No Dutch Bros for us. The exchange is back after this.
shares of Alphabet hanging on to gains despite a tough tape right now. Let's get back to Deirdre Bosa. She is in Mountain View with some headlines from the Google I.O. conference. Deirdre? Kelly, I've got one eye on the presentation, and right now they're going over a really anticipated battle in this generative AI race, and that is Google Search. Google executives are talking about how search is going to look different, and they're showing examples. I'm looking at it right now. Gone are the 10 blue links where you can click through. A lot of that has to do with the advertising, the very lucrative advertising model that Google has built. Um, so we'll update you on that as we get more of it. Um, in terms of what else has been announced, Sundar Pichai, he opened it up, and he talked a lot about responsibility. That has really been his tone over the last few months, despite sort of the enthusiasm and excitement that his rival over at Microsoft is trying to portray. And in the long run, we don't know, that may serve him better, but he did talk about building with responsibility. He even says that they're developing tools to identify AI-generated content, like using watermarking and other techniques. Um, there have been some demos, but I will say, Kelly, that this feels very carefully choreographed than, say, the AI events of the last few months. The examples have been run in advance, and the presenter often is following a script. We did get one live demonstration. Um, it showed off Google Workspace with generative AI to write a kid's short story. The AI model reads the text and prompts plot twists, even generative AI images. So it's a pretty safe live demo. We are about 45 minutes into this presentation. I expect that we'll get some more. But again, Kelly, I'm going to go back, look and watch what they're saying on search, because this is the big one. This is sort of the big battle and the big question around Google. How can it lead in this gigantic platform shift that is generative AI while not cannibalizing its bread and butter, which is search, of course. Have there been kind of independent assessments, Deirdre, of, of whose technology is the most reliable in terms of the, the quality of its information? I don't know if there's anything definitive. Um, this is anecdotal, but I use both ChatGPT and BARD on a daily basis, and I actually find, this is again, very anecdotal, but I find BARD to be the more accurate one, but we know mm -hmm. that there's more users using ChatGPT. We also know that this is such early days, and you cannot rely on these things. They sound like they're correct. They sound like they're giving you the right answer, but we know for both of these platforms, for all of these large language models, that you have to be careful and look at the sourcing. And that's why I think it's notable that Sundar Pichai has not strayed from his course of doing this responsibly. And while investors kind of want that excitement that Microsoft and Jet ChatGPT is giving them, you could think that Google may ultimately sort of be the leader here because they're doing so carefully and thoughtfully, and really they're not wavering from that today. Yeah, no, a lot, I think a lot of people have had your same experience, and it is funny how um, confident, arrogant even the, they are with results, any of them, any of these models, <laughs> where they're saying, yeah, this is definitely the answer, even yeah, if it contradicts a, a, a moment later. Yeah. Deirdre, for now, we appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa will continue to monitor that event for us. And don't miss an exclusive interview with Google Cloud CEO Thomas Kurian on Closing Bell Overtime at 4 p.m. Eastern today. Now, shares of Disney are lower ahead of its results after the bell by about 2%, one of the worst names in the Dow today. But it has beaten estimates 14 times in the past five years. Will today be number 15? Julia Borson here to maybe answer that. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kelly. That's right. Well, Disney doesn't give official earnings guidance, but investors are hoping for a number of updates 
from CEO Bob Iger, particularly on the impact of his cost-cutting moves and the progress that he's made so far towards the $5.5 billion savings target, which he announced last quarter. Now, the company is expected to show 7.5% higher revenue, while earnings per share are projected to decline by nearly 14%. Now, this is for Disney's fiscal second quarter. And one key factor investors will be watching is whether costs around the streaming division are declining while streaming subscribers they hope will continue to grow. Now, as for the future, investors are going to be looking for insight into Iger's perspective around general entertainment. Of course, that impacts what he's going to be doing with Hulu, uh, which is a, a deal they have to figure out with CNBC's parent company, Comcast, before the end of this year. The other big topic that everyone in Hollywood is talking about right now is the writer's strike. The question, of course, is how much that strike could impact the company's business, the TV business in particular. And then the other question is the economy. How much concerns about an ad slowdown are going to be impacting both the streaming revenue um, in terms of advertising, as well as, of course, all that ad revenue that comes in for the TV business. You know, Julia, one of the you. big kind of debates or, or discussions I heard Disney investors having recently was whether the company is and should be all in on streaming and trying to compete with Netflix. You know, at some point, should they just say, Netflix, you, you've built what you have. We're going to license our content to you, reap a ton of money, and not try to build out, you know, a real rival to that. I know it sounds crazy to say, but the I'm ship just, has sailed. Where is that Bob ship Iger's has sailed, Kelly? Where is Bob Iger That ship this? has sailed. You know, there are, there are so many subscribers, millions and millions upon millions of subscribers for Disney+. Plus. So that ship has definitely sailed. I think the question really is not whether they should invest fully in streaming, because I think they are certainly invested fully in streaming. I think the question is how much they want to compete with the likes of Netflix with general entertainment, how committed they are to Hulu. Um, it's interesting because they're going to have a new reporting structure before the end of their fiscal year in which it's going to be ESPN, entertainment, and then parks and resorts and, and uh, consumer products. So they're really lumping the entertainment business together. So we'll see what the long-term vision is for ESPN and when they want to bring more of that ESPN content onto streaming. But the real question for streaming is not whether or not they have a very successful product in Disney+. Plus. They have that down. The question is whether or not they're going to want to buy out the remainder of the this, the Hulu stake that they sure. don't currently own, and they're really going to go up against Netflix with that general entertainment piece, or whether they're more focused on just their core audience, that core Disney brand, and all those franchises they've invested so much in. Absolutely. So I think that I'll think about it more as a general entertainment play, whether rather than do they care about streaming? We know I, they care I'm about streaming. I'm just saying some of these shareholders, like imagine how well they do if they weren't trying, you know, they could just give the content to Netflix. Anyway, uh, we'll see if Bob Iger kind of uh, doubles down this afternoon. Julia, for now, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Julia Borston. Coming up after the break, fertility is a booming business with the market valued in the tens of billions of dollars, showing no signs of slowing. We'll talk, talk to Gina Bartazzi next. She's founder of Kind Body, number 43 on our Disruptor 50 list this year. Talk about how she's helping employers like Walmart, Lyft, and Tesla offer these benefits to workers. As we head to break, here's a look at the markets. A little off session lows. Dow's down 270. Nasdaq still up a quarter percent. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to 
The Exchange, the 11th annual CNBC Disruptor 50 list released yesterday, highlighting private companies chasing some of the market's biggest opportunities. Today, we're taking a look at number 43 on the list, KindBody, valued at over $1.8 billion. The healthcare company on a mission to make fertility care more accessible and affordable. They've already partnered with over 112 companies, including a lot of notable names like Walmart. Here with more is KindBody founder and chair, Gina Bartesi. Gina, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So the this is such a huge market area. Um, the only thing I wonder is, you know, how much does it cost companies to kind of get involved in, and offer, you know, products in your space? Yeah, it depends if you buy direct through Kind Body or if you go through a middleman. Certainly, if you go through a middleman, you're going. It's like other insurance companies. They're going to charge you a margin could be as high as 23 percent. So when employers come to Kind Body, they save immediately off the top of 23% savings. The other thing we do to democratize care and make care more affordable for employers is utilize technology. So Kind Body is the only uh, fertility network around the country that owns and operates proprietary technology, yeah. including our patient portal and Kind EMR. Interesting. So if a lot of employers will take the biggest insurers, you know, UNH, for instance, do they offer these kinds or do they cover these kinds of fertility uh, needs? Yeah, fertility is changing rapidly. I've been in the industry a dozen years and I can remember uh, my previous company was Progeny and um, employers would say, well, what is a fertility benefit? We don't have a fertility benefit. And I was like, well, how you build families is changing pretty dramatically. You're going to have a fertility benefit. So the difference is, you know, it's moved from a nice to have to a must have. So health insurance companies uh, historically had a rider and you could buy up a fertility benefit. It was typically a, a lifetime maximum of twenty-five dollars or $30,000, always on a fee-for-service basis. Um, at Kind Body, we think the fee-for-service model is dead in healthcare or should be dead. It's certainly dying if it's not dead. And you move to value-based bundled case rates so that the employer knows uh, exactly what they're paying for when they go into it. That makes sense. Is the cost of these con treatments, kinds of treatments continuing to rise? We know obviously the demand for them is going up. Is there any sign on the horizon that they might become more affordable over time? They must become more affordable. It is a mission of Kind Body to bring down the cost of care. Uh, we do see uh, peers of ours in the space continuing to increase prices. I think what's driving that um, is some artificial inflation and in pricing due to uh, supply and demand. Today, uh, demand for fertility treatment services is really outstripping supply of fertility doctors and fertility clinics. So it's propping up the price. Absent that supply-demand issue, prices really should start to moderate and over time come down. I don't want to ask if you have an AI angle here, but, you know, this is the Disruptor 50, and, and somehow I feel like maybe there's, there's some way in which this technology will be deployed. Yeah, of course we have an AI angle. Um, before we hired our first doctor, opened our first uh, clinic, uh, the first $6 million we raised in seed capital went to acquiring a proprietary EMR, an electronic medical record. Huh. In order to truly create change in healthcare, you must first start with technology. So we have our own, again, kind EMR, our patient portal. Uh, the first thing a patient does when they start treatment is they wanna know their prognosis. What's my likelihood of success of taking home a baby? And so we have a tool, the patient enters their age, their pregnancy history, their weight, and other data markers, and we predict your likelihood of success with one cycle, with two cycles, with three cycles. Certainly the more eggs you have, the more cycles you go through, the greater your chance of likelihood to take home a baby. And then AI really is about more data in, the refinement of AI. So what we're doing now as we continue to build our AI solution is pulling in sperm morphology and more, uh, um, um, the sperm mobility and morphology 
Um, and then what we'll do is put sperm and egg together and uh, be able to have a prognostication and tool uh, that really tells the patient what their embryo transfer and live birth treatment is going to be. I'm thinking about the people who turn it on in the middle of the segment and are going, what are we yes, talking sperm, about? sperm, eggs, embryos, <laughs> would all you, about babies. Would you go into the broader, in 10 seconds, go in the broader health space from here or kind of stay in this niche? We're in the broader health space today. Uh, everything from menarche to menopause. All right. I don't even know what that, I don't, so I don't even want to know what half of this stuff means. Gina, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and congratulations this year. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Gina Bartese of Kind Body on Disruptor 50. That does it for the exchange today, everybody, but don't go anywhere. Coming up next on Power Lunch, we continue our discussions with the Disruptor 50 number 25 zip line. They're not what I thought. They're a drone company on track to make a million autonomous delivery successfully already by year end. And Tyler's back. He is getting ready and I will join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.